welcome to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. This podcast is devoted to helping increase your daily exposure to God's Word with a short scripture reading and brief commentary on key ideas, themes, and theology in each chapter. Now please join your host, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. Well, welcome back to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. Today is January 11th, and today we're going to look at Genesis 11. As a reminder, the the goal, the format of this show is every day I'm going to read one chapter, and then I'm going to offer an explanation of key ideas, themes, and goals, and the theology briefly. And my goal is to get you in God's Word for about 5 minutes to 20 minutes or so. Sometimes we go a little over that, as you no doubt know. Now let's uh, get to our reading of God's Word. Genesis 11 says this, And now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in this land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. And therefore its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the whole earth. Now there are, these are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Erzphad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpishabad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Arpishabad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpishabad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Peleb had lived for 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleb lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Sereg. And Ru lived after he fathered Sereg 207 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Sarek had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Nahor lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Nahor lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Melchi, the daughter of Haran, the father of Melchi, and Eshek. And now Sarah was barren. She had no child. 
Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Aaron, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son's uh, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, let's look at verses 11, 1 through 9. This is a Tower of Babel episode. It is significantly more important than its length suggests for us. It presents a unified humanity using all of its rich resources to establish a city that is the antithesis of what God intended when he created the world. The tower is a symbol of human autonomy and the city builders, they see themselves as determining and establishing their own destiny without any reference to the Lord. The Tower of Babel story may also be a polemic against the Mesopotamia mythology, Arudu, Genesis, a fragmentary text found in Nippur and Nineveh. It describes the goddess Nintor's calling for humanity to build cities and to congregate in one place. Her desire, according to this text, is that humans be sedentary and not nomadic. Yahweh demands just the opposite, so the earth will become populated. And the opening account in verse 1 of this text, of this chapter, I mean, is of the whole earth having one language, which indicates that the present episode is not placed chronologically after the events narrated in chapter 10, which specifically mentions nations and languages. And this incident may have occurred during the broad period covered in chapter 10, especially since it is liking the name of Peleg in uh, 10.25 of this text. Now, in, in Genesis 10.25, I mean. Now, in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 11, our text says, Come, let us build ourselves a city, and let us make a name for ourselves. That, that is, the Babylonian enterprise, is, it's all about human independence. It's all about self-sufficiency apart from the Lord. The builders believe that they have no need of the Lord. Their, their technology, their social unity, they, it gives them confidence in their own ability. And they have high aspirations, high uh, desires to construct a tower with its top in the heavens. And that is contrary to God's plan that people should fill the earth. The city building project is designated to prevent the population from being dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, by showing God's continued interest in his creatures, this episode proves the the setting for the call of Abram out of the very region to be the vehicle blessing to the entire world. See, God always has a plan. Now, verses 5 through 11. The narrator, with irony, he points out that this was necessary for the Lord to come down in order to see the city and the tower. And acknowledging the potential danger of a unified, self-confident humanity, the Lord intervenes by confusing their languages so they cannot understand one another. This has the desired effect of dispersing the people throughout the whole world. Verse 9, this links the name of the city, Babel, with the verbal Balal, which means to confuse, to mix, to mingle. But Babel is also the name used in the Old Testament for the city of Babylon. As a city, Babylon symbolizes humanity's ambition to dethrone God and make the earth its own. And in verses 10 through 26, we see Shem's descendants. Resembling the list of Adam's descendants in Genesis 5, 3 through 31, their present linear genealogy it traces Noah's line through Shem down to Terah, the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. 
And while the pattern is identical to the one in chapter 5, the final elements thus all the days of A were Z, years, and he died is missing. And also, unlike chapter 5, no additional information is inserted. And the, li- the list here moves swiftly from Shem to Terah. And while the periods mentioned are still unusually long, they gradually become shorter. The length of time during which these men live is much shorter than is recorded for men living before the flood in chapter 5. Now, this is similar to the pattern found in clay tablets from Mesopotamian city of Uruk called the Sumerian king. It was inscribed by a scribe during the reign of Utikahel about 2100 BC. It tells of kings who reigned for extremely long times. A flood then came and subsequent kings ruled for a vastly shorter time. Now in verse 26, the regular pattern of genealogy is broken with the names of Terah's three sons. Before this, only the son through whom the linear genealogy is traced is specifically named in each generation. Abram comes first in this list because of the ongoing family line is traced through him. Now we come to another sec, a new major section in, in Genesis. It's, it starts at Genesis eleven twenty seven and it runs through Genesis 50, 26. This next major section of Genesis is that of the patriarchal history. And so what we're going to see here is the narrative moves from the general survey of humanity to the specific family from which Israel comes. The narrative style becomes, in fact, severely matter-of-fact. The narrator devotes more time to describing the lives of the character in this section, whereas in chapters 1 through 11, he, he governs many generations, only in ele- covers many generations in 11 chapters. And so patriarchal history only deals with four generations in 39 chapters. It begins, this section does, with Abraham, and it goes to his son Isaac, and Isaac's two sons, Jacob and Esau. And the final section here, it's focused on Jacob's son, specifically Joseph. Here the specifics of being Israel are made clear. The land, the people, the blessing, and the calling. The Sinai, or the Mosaic Covenant, which is the first audience for these chapters, receives will provide the setting in which Israel is put to put these patriarchal promises into practice. And throughout these chapters, readers are going to see how the Lord has preserved members of his chosen family, whose calling is to walk with him, to be the headwaters of a special people, and to be a channel by which blessing comes to the entire world. In Genesis eleven twenty seven through twenty five eighteen, we see Terah's descendants, and this new heading identifies the expression: "These are the generations." This introduces to us the next main section. These char- these chapters are going to focus on the immediate family of Terah, and special attention here is going to be given to Abraham because the unique family line of Genesis continued through him. And in verses 27 through 32, we're given a very brief introduction to Terah's family. And various details are pertinent to understanding the subsequent narrative are giving are given. The death of Lot's father Haran, the relocation of the family from southern to northern Mesopotamia in verse 31, and the inability of Abram's wife to have children in verse 30. Verse 27, Abram will later have his name changed to Abraham. In verse 28, Ur of the Chaldeans is unquestionably the ancient city in southern Babylonia, the remains of which are located at Tel el Mekoyar in modern Iraq. 
Archaeological Investigations by Leonard Woolley. From 1922 to 1934, they uncovered evidence of a highly developed urban culture in the time of Abraham, a culture that developed around 2000 BC, the term Chaldeans. It probably takes us back to the dates of the periods from 1000 to 500 BC and has been added to distinguish this Ur from the similar named cities in northern Mesopotamia. Chaldean refers to the Chaldu people who settled in southern Babylon uh, around 1200 BC onward. Uh, uh, verses 29 of this chapter. The name Sarah is later changed to Sarah. Sarai's barrenness is an obvious barrier to the continuation of Abraham's family line. The initial barrenness of the patriarch's wives is a recurring motif in this chapter. Verses 31 through 32. According to multiple texts from the 19th century B.C. texts composed by the Assyrian traders who clearly understood such matters, Haran was an important crossroads and a commercial center in the ancient Near Eastern world. Verse 31, although Terah's ambition is to move his family from Ur to Canaan, they do not complete the journey. Instead, they settle in northern Mesopotamia at Haran, the location in Turkey that is now called Eska Haran Old Haran. Now, the spelling of the town named Haran in Hebrew is quite distinct from the name of Terah's third son. This is the Bible's first reference to the land of Canaan, but, but the, the archives found in northern, uh, the e Elba archives found in northern Syria in the 1970s, they contain tablets dating to 2300 BC, and they make mention of certain geographical places found in scriptures such as Sodom and Zeobam, two cities in this episode of the War of the Kings mentioned in Genesis 14, 1-16. And in addition, the first time the name Canaan is used in extra-biblical lit literature is at e Elba in table tablets that predate the biblical writings by centuries. Verse 32, by, by way of completing this short introduction to Terah's family, the narrative records his death at 205 years. And so if Abram was born when Terah was 70 years old, and if Abram was 75 years old when he reported from Canaan, then Terah dies 60 years after Abram's departure. In Acts 7.4, Stephen says that Abram left Haran after the death of Terah. A simple way to resolve this chronological difficulty is to suppose that Stephen was following an alternative text represented today in the Samaritan Pentateuch, which says that Terah died at the age of 145. Now, what we see here in in this passage is that in, in these passages, not in this specific chapter, but in this section that we've been talking about, we saw that God blessed Noah and his sons after the global flood. He told them to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth in Genesis 9-1. But only about a century later, we see that man seems to have no interest in obeying the command to fill the earth, as we see in Genesis 11-1-4. through that is because they were fueled by pride. The people were fur preferred to make a name for themselves, to build a city with a high tower, enabling them to remain together in defiance against the command of God. And the proposed construction began. Composed of brick and mortar, this city was intended to be permanent, to be impressive, a fortress against any natural or supernatural attempt to disperse mankind throughout all the earth. And yet we know that the Lord intervenes. But God was neither unaware of their actions nor powerless against their plans. In his mercy, he interve intervened not by destruction as he had during the flood, nor by direct 
directly driving them out of, as to be fugitives and wanderers. It said God divided their single language into multiple languages as we see in Genesis 11, 5 through 7. That is, for the first time in the earth's history, there is a language barrier. Without a common language, the people have been so adamant about staying together, were now even unable to understand each other. Construction of the city ceased, whether because they lost interest in the city due to the futility of attempting to coordinate such a massive project without a means of communication, not to mention losing the appeal of living together as one people, or because they recognized God's judgment and feared a worse sentence should they attempt to continue their rebellion. Well, whatever the case, God's judgment was effective. They attempted one world kingdom fractured. Smaller groups formed from those sharing each of the new languages, and people began scattering as we see in verses 8 through 9. You might wonder, why does this matter? Well, besides a fascinating part of mankind's history, the biblical account of the events of Babel also answers some of the questions of the problems of our own day. It especially answers challenges, uh, and challenges, I mean, certain evolutionary ideas, and it provides a reasonable explanation for the diversity in language and people groups today. And, and that is to say that perhaps the most obvious area explained by Babel is the origin of the various language present in our world. While an evolutionary worldview uh, argues that we might expect all languages to trace back to a single parent family, much like claims all life traces back to one organism, that isn't what researchers have found. Instead, language families of today trace back to multiple unrelated parent families and exactly what one would predict from the Babel account. Well, what basis is there for racism, we might wonder? Well, the evolutionary story of mankind's origin is inherently racist, we must say, because of its implications that some people groups are more evolutionarily advanced than others, and therefore that the lower groups are more closely related to primates. However, the Bible's account of the events at Babel, it confirms that all people are descended from groups split at Babel, who, who were all direct recent descendants of Noah and subsequently from the first humans, Adam and Eve, who are special direct creations of God. There is no basis for racism at all. All people are related and comprise only one race of people made in the image and likeness of God, and therefore they are all equal and all equally human. But then why do people from various parts of the world look so different from each other? And, and the explanation for the difference in physical appearance is simple. As a group spread out and they separated from each other at Babel, their gene pools were largely isolated. Generally more so, they, the farther apart they were, and physical features such as certain skin shades or eye shapes gradually became dominant within each group. These distinctive features are also still reflected in the diversity among people groups today. But far from evidence of evolution, these minor genetic differences, and they are minor, making up only a very small percentage of an individual's DNA, are the natural result of a loss of genetic variability that occurs when people groups are isolated from one another. So we might, you might ask the question, were people separated at Babel because God miraculously changed the common language? Well, about 6,912 distinct languages exist in the world today. 
The Bible says that God confounded the language of Babel to separate the people and to stop and to stop uh, their advance into the heavens. Now, standard theory argues that language changed when people are separated, but the Bible teaches that people were separated at Babel because God miraculously changed the common language. And so, which story fits the facts? The miracle of Babel or the gradual change? How do we get all these languages? Well, you you might wonder. And so, here's the answer. The main way that we tell any two languages apart is by whether the speaker of one language can understand the speakers of another, right? Duh. But for instance, because Chinese and French speakers cannot understand each other, they speak different languages. If dialects are included, the number is much greater. George Bernard Shaw in 1856 to 1950, the British playwright of Philogian, Riley claimed that America and Britain were countries separated by a common language. Actually, the separation does tend to produce differences. When people with a common language are separated by, say, an ocean for about a thousand years, they end up not being able to understand each other. The Scandinavians in Iceland cannot understand those who stayed in Europe. The English of Beowulf's time from about 680 AD to 800 AD is unintelligible to speakers of modern English, which is dated roughly from Shakespeare, 1564 to 1616, and the King James Bible of 1611. If we make Shakespeare today, we would understand it, but not folks from Beowulf's time. Even printed literature, dictionaries, telephones, computers, and even worldwide travel cannot keep languages from changing. We see remnants of change in English where let use to mean prevent now generally means allow, excepting a let ball in tennis. And meat used to mean any kind of food, but is now limited to what Shakespeare called flesh. And by comparing languages with the help of written records, we know that French and Spanish, also Italian, Portuguese, and Romanian, come from Latin. And based on similarities as simple as the numbers uno, or un, uno, deuce, or dox, and trois, trace, we can see evidence of a common source language. But Chinese numbers do not resemble French, Spanish, or English. The first three number, numbers in Chinese are yi, er, and san. And evidences like this, languages can infer family relations between languages and can even partially reconstruct proto-languages and whole families. That is, because languages naturally do change over time, linguists, linguists suppose that all of today's languages were produced by changes that we see going on around us. And however that explanation hits the wall and fails, at the Tower of Babel. The problem is best illustrated by the most widely studied language of the world, the roughly 449 distinct languages that fall into the Indo-European language family. Approximately 45% of people in the world today speak one of the languages in this group. It includes English, Spanish, Russian, and 446 other languages. All those languages are known to have come from a single source, commonly known as the Proto-Indo-European or Pi. Based on the scant historical evidence, secular linguists believe Pi was spoken in Europe sometimes between the 3rd and 7th millennium BC, give or take a couple thousand years. Now, the most widely spoken language family is the Sino-Tibetan group, which includes Chinese. It is estimated to have about 403 distinct languages. It accounts for about 22% of the world's population. That language family, too, is believed to have come from a family of a common source, but different from Pi. 
and neither of these distinct source languages can be reasonably be dated earlier than the miracle of Babel. And besides, these two families, 92 other distinct languages and families are supposed to exist. But these two possible secular theories, all these languages, all their derived languages, they all come from a single original language. And two, the language capacity must have evolved and expressed itself multiple times. Both ideas have been advocated by secular linguists, but current knowledge refutes both possibilities. The theory that any language could arise by chance has been refuted logically. It's even been refuted mathematically. And so the idea that language capacity could come about by chance more than once is even less likely than it's evolving accidentally just once. No one has shown how language families as different as Proto-Indo-European and Proto-Sino-Tibetan could arrive from a common source. And the same holds true for the other 92 families insofar as they could have been studied. In fact, what we see in Babel is a key to unlocking language families. You see, the Lord does all things well, amen? Nothing half-heartedly or without complete effectiveness. The languages created at Babel will also, also almost certainly turn out to be radically distinct from each other. This is what the current evidence already tells us. Plenty of time has passed since Babel for the original language families to branch out to all of the 6,912 known languages. For example, the Proto-Indian-European is known to have split into the 449 Indo-European languages of today, since approximately the time of Babel. The rate of change of known subgroups, notably those on Latin, Sanskrit, Greek, and Germanic and Slavic languages, that shows that the whole number of languages in the world today could easily have been produced within a span and a space of 4,000 years. Is that a problem for secular linguists who suppose that all languages evolved from a single source language? You bet. Probably future study will enable linguists to reduce the 94 language families currently under study to a smaller number. With that said, setting aside baseless attempts to arbitrarily force distinct languages and even whole families together, the biblical account of Babel is the only explanation that fits the data. Also, we can make a testable prediction. The number of families will be reduced in the future to no fewer than the group named in Genesis 10, where the table of nations appears. That list is by far the best one in existence, and the facts, as far as we know them, are consistent with the Bible. Enemies of Scripture, we must say, have especially made sport of this biblical narrative. They have supposed that all the diversity of the languages of the earth can be explained by gradual change. And we must say, if the Darwinian idea were correct, we should expect a very different picture than the one that we have here in Genesis 11. And there should be many languages differing very slightly from each other, stretching right across every continent across the globe. Furthermore, the, the 94 language families presently on record should be reducible to just one. But claims for a single original language are not supported by the existing facts. And this leads us to a deeper question. It's this. Why is language an integral part of every community on the earth? That's because even the most primitive cultures in the world, they have complex systems with abstract ideas such as zero, infinity, numbers, negation. Men are not immoral. Conjunction, he made the sheep and the goats. And disjunction, he took the horse but left the camel. Even a three-year-old can perform complex mental gymnastics with language like those I just illustrated. For instance, ch children delight in pragmatic recursion, commenting on a comment on a comment, or hearing a story about a story that includes an another story or drawing a picture of a picture of a picture 
At an early age, children grasp the importance of using different words for distinct meanings. You know, in their efforts to explain the multitude of language, secular theorists, they come up with empty, empty meaning. They are upstaged by the biblical narrative, which credits God with the gift of language and the vastly diversity of different language families. The word language, tongue, speech, and word appear in the Bible 1,401 times. That is, from Genesis to Revelation, Scripture shows us that God created the universe. God sustains it. He has redeemed all who will believe by the power of his word. That power, according to Scripture, resides in the language capacity. It is the one and the only unmistakable signature of God in us. Made We are made in his image. In fact, Darwin wrote in a private letter that the human eye gave him a cold shudder. But language is vastly more complex than the eye. If Darwin had taken the time to consider his own language capacity, would he have proposed his materialistic theory of origins? Gene Piaget, perhaps the most respected psychologist of the 20th century, told of a conversation with Einstein, who commented to Piaget that psychology is more difficult than physics. Why? Because as Einstein made clear in other writings, without language there could be no study of physics. We could not ask about the origins of any kind. A child could not wonder where God was before the world was made. And the great questions of science and religion could never be asked. There could be no theories of origins. And so language certainly is at least as complex as anything represented by it. The capacity of all human infants to acquire something so complex it demands an explanation. Now, now turn on the news. Open a newspaper, scroll through social media, you're going to see that racial tensions continue to plague our world as people discriminate against each other, primarily on the basis of physical features. And that's not surprising when a culture rejects God's word as the objective basis for truth. In fact, we can say evolutionists, they promote the idea that the races we see today evolved from ape-men ancestors in Africa. And this leaves open the possibility that some races may have even evolved to different levels of intellect, physical abilities, or other traits. And yet scripture reveals that all human beings descend from one set of parents and that people groups of the world can be explained through the events of Genesis 11 as we've talked about today. That is to say, without a foundational understanding of origins from a biblical perspective and a biblical worldview, our understanding of race will be skewed. Uh, scripture doesn't begin with people evolving from ape-like creatures. We know this. Genesis records, as we've seen, that Adam and Eve were specially and intimately made by a supernatural act. The first humans, both male and female, created in the image of God on day six of creation week. If, if Adam and Eve were the first humans, then all their descendants would have also been fully human. Now, the genealogies in Genesis, they reveal the real history of the human race. People multiplied from Adam and Eve, and, and with them their sin nature. God saw the tremendous wickedness upon the earth and told a man named Noah to build an ark because God was sending a global flood. Noah and his family alone were spared, along with the animal kinds that boarded the ark. All other humans and land animals were destroyed in the global catastrophe. And since Noah and his family were the only humans preserved from the judgment, our, our genetic diversity can be traced back to those eight people on the ark. Well, after the global catastrophe, Noah's descendants multiplied and they became increasingly sinful. At the Tower of Babel, humans once again, they rejected God's word by building a tower and refusing to spread throughout the world as we've seen in this chapter. And seeing humanity's disobedience, 
God confused their language. Entire groups suddenly struggled to communicate with each other. As these people groups isolated themselves into different parts of the world, they formed small gene pools with less genetic variation, as we've talked about today. Each group had a different mix of genes for various physical features, and because of the small gene pools, specific characteristics like skin shade and eye shape became dominant. Now, people often assume that humans are divided into vastly different groups made of different colors. Remember the Sunday school song, Jesus Loves the Little Children of the World? Well, one line says red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. Well, if we take a basic look at basic genetics, it will explain why this song's reference to skin color doesn't add up. All humans have brown pigment in their skin called melon. People with dark skin have a lot of melon, and those with light skin have little melon. We, we're all the same color, just different shades. Now, Scripture says in Acts 17, 26, uh, the Bible, we need to understand there that the Bible never uses the word race, but it does mention that we are one blood in Acts 17, 26. Now, in, in Scripture, we must say never uses the word race, but it does mention, as I just said, that we are of one blood in Acts 17, 26. We can all trace our ancestry back to Noah and his family and then back to Adam and Eve, which means we're all related. All humans identify with Adam not only in his humanity, but also in his sin nature according to Romans 5.12. God revealed through the Apostle Paul that just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin in Romans 5.12. However, Jesus Christ became a descendant of Adam to die for the descendants of Adam according to Romans 5.17. Because of Christ's sinless life, death, burial, and resurrection, we are able to put our trust in him for eternal life and await the promise of a new heavens and a new earth. Those who reject Christ will face eternal punishment. But those who have put their faith in the one whom the Bible calls the last Adam, Jesus Christ, will receive the forgiveness and escape of forgiveness of sins and escape the consequences of sin and death. The redeemed from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group, all with a beautiful variety of physical features, will be around the throne of God, according to Revelation 7, 9. Now, what we see is that Shem's descendants, they settled much of the Middle East and portions of Iran and India. Ham descendants settled parts of the Middle East, such as Israel, as well as uh, North Africa and China. Japheth's descendants settled Europe, including Greece and Spain and Russia, including Siberia. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching this episode of the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. My name is Dave, and until tomorrow, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to also like, subscribe, or follow Servants of Grace on Facebook, Instagram, X, or YouTube. We appreciate your support.